0: you.
1: Lord Brett Sinclair, an American, Danny Wilde. They each have something, but jointly, like chemicals. Take two relatively harmless compounds, say, nitro and glycerin.
2: Mix them both together and you have a very potent combination. Nitro and glycerin, and I light the fuse. Hello
3: and welcome to the fourth edition of ITC Entertainer World Podcast. Today I'm joined by my regular host, Rodney Marshall and Al Smudge. How are you doing, guys? Yeah, very well, thank you.
4: Yeah, all good here, thank you very much.
3: Today, we are talking about the series, The Persuaders. Now, I imagine that most of you out there will know that it's my favorite ITC show, my favorite TV show ever, actually. The reason for me that it's so special is because obviously the pairing of Tony and Roger, but the use of real locations, you know, they went to the south of France to film, Rome, Paris, Stockholm, London, Brighton. They had quality guests and people like Terry Thomas, Gladys Cooper, Joan Collins, Denham Elliott, and many, many more. The series has a great sense of fun, but also it's very glamorous. It's got great cars and the Aston Martin and the Ferrari Dino. It's got really great direction, especially from Roger Moore, actually, and the late Basil Dearden. It's got John Barry's wonderful music, with those superb opening titles that tell the story, the backstory of these two guys. But really what it's all about for this show is the chemistry between Tony Curtis and Roger Moore and how electric it is on screen and how they can take the most mundane script and still add real sparkle to it. Perhaps I'm a little over-enthusiastic about this show, but I just want to hand it over to you two guys and tell me why you enjoy this show.
4: It is, as you say, it's sparkle. Yeah, you, you mentioned mundane scripts. The plots are often pretty basic. But uh, as I've, I've said here in my notes, this is real jet set adventure. It's crime fighting in the martini age. It could be a martini advert. It's gloss. It's spectacle. It opens up. Europe, like no series, no ITC series we've seen before. And the amazing thing I remember from the original screening is the buzz about the programme before it was made. Everybody was talking about it, and when you look at it, there was so much being done. There was a huge campaign, a, a running campaign in the TV Times, probably around a year before it actually hit the screens. As soon as Lou Grade mentioned he'd signed up Roger, that was it. And then the amazing fact that he got Tony Curtis and everybody was just literally on tenterhooks, really, for for this series. Everybody had enjoyed The Saints. The Saint was well-established. Roger was well-established as a star. But the amazing fact was you were getting this massive star from America. And when it finally hit the screens, in terms of spectacle, because it really is a spectacular show, nobody was disappointed.
5: Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't disagree with any of that. I mean, I love where it fits into the ITC history as well, because we've had a whole decade of really exciting action-adventure. And the 70s will not be a decade of action-adventure in the same way. And this is a wonderful, slightly nostalgic look-back, but with a wicked tongue-in-cheek as well. And, you know, we've talked on quite a few of these podcasts of ITC creating sort of cinematic experience of a small screen. Well, that doesn't apply to any show more than it does to the Persuaders. And, um, you know, I love the story of them arriving while well, filming that first episode. And uh, I think they're opposite Monte Carlo Casino. And, you know, you've got Coach Glow's Spanish tourist charging across. And Tony Curtis thinks they're coming for his autograph. I don't want to sign autographs. And they're coming to see Roger Moore. El Santo. El Santo. And, you know, I think it was a wake-up call to Tony Curtis, actually, television can make stars just as, as Hollywood can. And, uh, and this is a show with two stars. I know that I think Bob Baker said, well, Tony Curtis was the actor, Roger Moore is the star. But really, we've, we've got two huge stars here, haven't we?
4: Would you say, looking at it from that perspective, Uh, as you say, the sort of retrospective angle. We've had a decade or so of of heroes, basically, with ITC. Would you say that really effectively this is the last great ITC series?
3: Yes. For me, this is the jewel in the ITC crown. It doesn't get any more to the top of the mountain than this. After this, I think, shows begin to be made either on 16mm film. Mm -hmm. They then go down to 25 minutes. They then bring in predominantly American sponsorship or company sponsorship. For example, in The Protectors, that was sponsored by Fabergé. The Adventure was sponsored by Chevrolet. This is really the peak. Everything in the 60s has been building to this point where Roger Moore has basically established himself in the early 60s as this actor. And he's climbing this mountain every year, more and more with the success of The Saint worldwide. Then we have Tony Curtis, who I know a number of people have said, well, his star was kind of on the way down. But actually, when you look at what Tony Curtis had done just before this in The Boston Strangler, that was one of the best films he ever did. The performance in that should have won him an Oscar. He could still act. And this guy really is why this show, I think, personally is such a success because he made Roger rise to a completely different level in terms of his acting. Mm -hmm. Roger was a fantastic actor, don't get me wrong. But as soon as Tony Curtis came into this and he brought that I'm a Hollywood A-lister, he put Roger on his toes. And Roger was the first to admit that. And I think that is why the sparks fly. For me, like I say, you don't get any higher than this. And after this, this is when ITC shows begin to slowly
5: go downhill. Mm -hmm. What you said earlier, Jazz, about it being the jewel in the crown, I guess it depends where we're coming from if we're talking about in terms of scripts for example clearly Gideon's Way is a far better series if we're talking about just in terms of pure entertainment and spectacle then yes this is The Jewel in the Crown and I guess that's what we're saying here isn't it?
3: We briefly mentioned the premise for The Persuaders came from an episode of The Saint called The Ex-King of Diamonds that Bob Baker did as a trial run with Stuart Damon in the role of the American, playing a Texan oil baron. Bob was pleased with how that went and wanted to progress the idea. I was lucky enough to do a DVD audio commentary with Bob and Roger for The Ex-King of Diamonds. Here's a bit of what Bob recalled from that commentary.
2: This episode was made for the purpose of just trying out a format for the Persuaders uh, In it, we had uh, Roger Moore, the Englishman, and we had a Texan as his, um, his co-partner.
1: Stuart Damon. Yes.
2: Uh, Stuart Damon, who, who um, has, has appeared in television series in this country. I think the champions, among other things, we wanted to have a, a sort of friendly antagonism, a, a buddy, sort of movie and it's it's an unusual story for the saint because he shares this entirely with the with with his uh, co-partner however when we eventually did the series we dropped the idea of the texan and had a guy from the bronx tony tony curtis so anyway this was a tryout and it seemed to work very well.
3: After The Saint ended, Roger had obviously gone off and done a couple of films, Crossplot being the first, and then The Man Who Haunted Himself, which is another great movie and a real example of how good an actor Roger actually is. And then Roger didn't want to do any more television, but famously Lou Grade sold the series in without Roger agreeing to it. There's a little clip we've got of that.
1: I was in America. And I was very close with ABC. In fact, I would sit in when they were doing their schedules. And they said, we need a program for Tuesday, 10 o'clock. I said, what about Roger Moore again? They said, well, no, Roger Moore, you know, he's been 165 episodes of The Saint. We really want something different. I said, what happens if I get Tony Curtis as well? They said, if you get Tony Curtis, you have a deal. I spoke to the agent. I want Tony Curtis to do a series called The Persuaders together with Roger Moore. He'll never do television. I went to California. Tony Curtis, at the ring of the doorbell, I opened the door. He says, What do I call you? I was then salubri. I says, Call me what you like as long as you do the television series. I kept him there one hour. He said, Okay, I'll do it. I then knew I had to face Roger Moore. He said, Right, so we're going to do the Persuaders. I said, Leo, oh, but I don't want to do it. I said, I don't want to do any more television. He said, well, I've sold it. I said, I said you've sold it? And he said, yes. I said, but that's, is that sort of illegal, selling something that somebody else doesn't want to do? He said, well, you know, the country needs the money. Think of the Queen. First of all, I gave him a cigar. He liked to smoke cigars. And I went in the drawer and I'd written out a check. I said, this is to start with. He looked at that check and said, when do I start?
3: Tony Curtis wasn't the first choice for the American role. Rock Hudson was considered first, but he said no. Then they approached Glenn Ford, but I think they felt he was too old. So it ended up with the third choice being Tony Curtis. The chemistry in this show is down to Tony Curtis being a bit offish, a bit wild, like his name, a bit of a a wild card, and Roger being able to match him and sometimes rein him in
5: Well, I mean, Tony Curtis is is the X factor Uh, and I'm not trying to put one above the other, both are integral to the show. But for example, had Stuart Damon been cast, you know, having been in that sort of um, dress rehearsal in the Saint run, had he been cast, this would still be just another ITC show. The fact that Tony Curtis is not only in terms of sending the shockwaves through before production, but actually as a technician. In front of the camera he just brings british tv series to a different level doesn't he we haven't had someone like that before and we won't get someone like that again i don't think
4: like jazz said he sparks he really does spark i mean a big factor in this has to be the, the ad-libbing and again as jazz said he, he kept roger on his toes literally with the ad-libs but roger could match him or he could rein him in or whatever but it's the dialogue that drives the relationship and of course It's the relationship that drives the show. It's the relationship that gets them over the mundane plots, the routine scripts. It's those two men, that relationship that you keep watching for.
3: Yeah, I think you're so right there as well. It's still every time I look at them and I just think like that relationship on screen is so magic and it doesn't matter what episode you watch, as soon as they're together, they're paired together on screen, you know this is absolute dynamism happening. It's really dynamic. I can't speak highly enough of it in terms of it. And I think what Tony Curtis did when he came over to the UK, like you say, it did send shockwaves through the British film industry, TV industry, that this guy's coming to work here. I think he also raised the standard of everyone working on it. Everyone knew that this was a huge star. You know, Some Like It Hot was considered, even then, one of the ultimate films. And I think everyone thought, we're working with this amazing film star. We're lucky to have him here. We've really got to get it right. And I know that he could be a bit funny to people on the crew, you know, and he had his moments. But I think we'd all agree that it's worth it for what you get on screen. The end result is just incredible. Originally the series was called The Friendly Persuaders, but they eventually changed the title after I think 12 or 13 episodes were filmed just to the persuaders. Although the press, like I think, liked to spin a line that the two didn't get on. But actually, they were just very different characters. Um, Bob said that Roger would be the first person to want to go and have a party, and he'd be on set the next morning, even if he'd been out all night, ready to go. Tony was much quieter, he'd just moved to London, he'd just had a baby with his then wife. He just wanted a happy, quiet life. They were quite different in their personal lives, but I do think
5: that they, they were fine during the duration of the programme while it was being made. I was going to say that there is a genuine fondness, though, between them as well as actors. I've looked at the final interview with the two of them in Britain, which can't have been long before Tony Curtis died. It must have been in the last few years. And Tony Curtis is, is on with the interview. I've forgotten who it was interviewing him. And he didn't realise Roger Moore was coming on. It was a surprise at a show. Alan rush when... was it? That's right. And when Roger Moore came on, you can see he was genuinely touched. And you don't get that from two guys who haven't got on. You know, they're clearly very different personalities, different backgrounds. But that was two people who I think had a genuine admiration and respect. And clearly, these are two guys who I think had a genuine respect for each other's craft didn't they
4: i think so and and as the record says they kept in touch in later years and when tony had problems or someone used to talk talk through something he would talk to roger and ultimately there were ups and downs with tony with the crew with certain other guest stars whatever but ultimately those two guys were professionals
3: a lot was made out at the time that the series got off to a bad start because Tony arrived in the UK and was done for having cannabis on him, especially because he was the leader of the uh, American anti smoking lobby or whatever, you know, pressure group kind of thing. But I think the press were kind of out at the time to say that these two didn't get on from the word go. I think there was a touch of jealousy, maybe, in the fact that Curtis had agreed to do this and
5: it was such big news. I don't know why the press were like that. The British press does not like good news stories.
3: Danny Wilde's character was originally called Chuck Kirk. We know this for a fact because it's in the first at least four scripts, three of which I'm lucky enough to own. And he was going to be a Texan oil baron. But again, this is where Tony Curtis comes in and sort of says, I'm not going to be a Texan oil baron. No way. I am going to be a New Yorker like I am. I'm going to play Danny Wilde like me. So they changed the name to Danny Wilde. I don't know if that was Tony's suggestion or not. But Bob was happy to go with how Tony envisaged his character being. I just can't imagine Tony Curtis trying to be a a Texan oil baron. It just wouldn't have worked, would
4: it? No, this is the thing. They realised that Tony was the money. I mean, yes, they had equal billing, but Tony was a hell of a name to have on the marquee. So to a certain extent, they could give him free reign. And he brought so much to it. He came with fresh ideas, with a different outlook. Certainly a different, slightly different style. I mean, there was, there was a lot of ad-lib in. There were tales that a simple sequence walking down a corridor, if they'd done three or four takes, it would be difficult to ribbon them together because he would do different little things each time. But thankfully, Bob Baker was happy to run with that. And, and look what we got.
5: this is serendipity again isn't it i I mean i think bob baker said events shaped the show and and what he was referring to was tony curtis coming on board Mm. and again when you look back at the the stuart damon saint episode yeah you can see pre-echoes but actually stuart damon's character is a fairly humorless one in it and
3: one thing i want to bring back that smudge said there about tony doing different things in every take we do have proof of that in the Avra scoop Dutch documentary where they're filming uh, film an interview while they're filming the episode, The Man in the Middle. And they show a couple of takes. Um, and in one of the takes, Tony Curtis grabs Terry Thomas by the nose and literally pulls him out from behind the curtain. That take didn't actually make the episode. So Tony was like that. He was always sort of on edge about doing things the same. He would never do the, the same thing twice. And I think, like I say, about keeping people on toes, it kept the crew on their toes. I mean, there's a really famous story where Roy Ward-Baker was directing The Gold Napoleon and Tony was talking to a couple of stuntmen. There was a scene where Tony has to climb up the outside of a foundry and then get up to a skylight and jump through. Well, Roy Ward-Baker was talking to the camera technicians, getting everything ready. And he says at the corner of his eye, he could see Curtis eyeing up where he was going to go and he just said look turn the cameras over turn the cameras over he's gonna do it and tony didn't say anything to roy ward baker and fortunately they got it and tony there he is shimmying up the side of the building and afterwards roy ward baker was a bit cross about it and he said that he thinks that curtis was trying to catch him out trying to just see if he was a good director but but that's typical tony going back again If we rewind a little bit more, there's a film that Tony did just prior to this called Monte Carlo or Bust. And Tony's character of Danny Wilde is very similar to the character he plays in Monte Carlo or Bust. It's like a 1920s version of Danny Wilde. So I think he'd already sort of knew what he was going to do in his part with this and how he was going to almost spar against Roger in a lot of the scenes.
4: I get the impression that on paper, again, the characters were fairly flat and there was that room for expansion or interpretation.
5: No, definitely. And I mean, uh, uh, as we've said a few times already, it really is these two actors who almost co-write the show in the end, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah,
3: certainly as well with the ad-libbing. I mean, like, if you look at an original script and then compare what it is on screen, you can always see that Roger is the person who will deliver the line that means the, the scene can then move on to the next bit. But those 10 or 12 lines of dialogue between them, Tony will go off completely one direction and Roger can match him, but it always comes back to the point right at the end where Roger will say the next line that, they need to go on to the next key scene, if you
0: know what I mean.
5: In a a mad way, does it actually matter what the dialogue is? And before you think I'm going mad, I'm thinking of the fact that this show is massively successful in France and Germany, where in both countries they completely ignored the dialogue Mm -hmm. and just went their own way. Mm -hmm. And I think you've got such a wonderful chemistry, and it's a physical chemistry as well as a verbal one between the two of them, that it's almost as if Curtis and Moore are enough to to make the show regardless of whether you know in Germany they've ignored the dialogue or in France or whatever else do you think there's an element of that jazz or? Absolutely I mean a lot of, a lot of people have pointed out or made
3: the fact that sometimes they interlink arms or you know and they walk off and laugh and I'm thinking of there for example of the episode to the deaf baby right at the end where they both go back to try and get the Jenny Linden character Shelley Masterton Mm neither of them do because she, she she's a con artist herself and she's moved on to the next person that she's going to try and come some money out of and they sort of link arms and walk off and you can see that they're sort of laughing about that they both didn't get her and it's a bit fun but yeah the, the physical uh relationship in as in what they do together is a huge part of this show and i think that They both match each other in different ways. I mean, Tony is very athletic in what he does. You know, like I already said, he'll climb the outside of a building. He always seems to vault gates, whereas Roger will open them, uh, probably because that came from the film that he did Trapeze. He loves his fencing. You know, there's a couple of episodes, Green Sleeves and Osiroth Inheritance, where as soon as there's a chance to get a sword out, you know, he's having a sword fight and that. But I think Roger matched him in, in, in physical aspects as well.
4: No, to come back to, to, the, to the other point, I mean, really, Roger as the anchor for the script, that is quite something, because so many actors would not be able to manage that. that. That is darn hard to do when somebody else is riffing on the dialogue like Tony does, and then suddenly you've got to pull it back. But... The thing is, the anchor actor like Roger has got to choose the point at which he pulls it back. And that is a hell of a feat. And there must be a heck of a lot of respect for him in that.
3: It's a huge skill, isn't it? If you think Mm -hmm. that you've got to know when you're going to deliver that line that is
5: going to then move on to the next scene. You know, how long do you let it play? I mean, one of the things that interested me was jazz. I mean, this is your favorite ITC show, as we've said, but you've always said that you like the sort of uh, the one hero series rather than the duo, and so it, in a way, I think that just exemplifies how well the chemistry works here, because sometimes two or three, in the case of the champions, it doesn't always work, and yet yeah. here, you can't imagine the one without the other or someone else playing one of the parts, can yeah. you?
3: Yeah, totally. You're right. You know, my favourite shows tend to be the single lead characters. I find the multiple lead series, there's kind of too much room in a way for one of them not to be in it. Say Randall and Hopkirk. Jeannie's in maybe sort of six or seven minutes of the episode and that's it. Whereas this, this is all Tony and Roger because this is kind of the exception to my usual liking of
5: ITC series. But
3: you're you're right, you can't imagine one without the other at all.
5: And and going back to Smudge's earlier point, it doesn't matter that the other characters are merely ciphers for the plot because this really is all about these two guys. That almost makes it unique as well because all the other shows we've been talking about, they've needed three-dimensional guest characters and this show doesn't need them.
4: Again, coming back to Jazz's point about the multiple hero facet, you've also got... And to me, this is this is a, a very well balanced element of the of the show. You've got the third wheel with the judge, but it's not an overbearing character. It's not a dominating character. He comes in, he pop, pops in, he pops out, whatever. But I think he makes um, a useful contribution when he just turn up.
3: Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, he's great in Overture, for example, when they're in the cellar and they're all getting drunk where they've been sort of all locked up. <laughs> I love that little scene. It's, it's, it's a little sort of extra to the judge who's usually quite sort of straight. But you're right. He's a sort of quiet influence in this show. He, um, mm. He's not overbearing. He's not in every episode. And when he turns up, he turns up for a reason. I know that at the start of the series they use him to sort of get the storyline going, you know, he's the sort of catalyst why they do the first sort of few adventures. Angie Angie is obviously one that we mentioned earlier that I should point out that was supposed to be shown as the second episode, predominantly because of the sparky relationship, as in like they're not sure of each other, they're still sort of weighing each other up. That was something that Bob Baker told me years ago, and I think he was slightly frustrated that it was never shown second and it ended up being 15 or 16 in the run, where you look at it and you think, well... Why are they sort of so off with each other at this point in the run? I know it wasn't filmed second, but he had it planned that Overture was first, Angie Angie was second, and in fact, apparently he said Five Miles to Midnight was going to be the third one. You know, he had an
5: idea of how the series wanted to, de- to develop. He didn't really mind after that. I suppose the only thing I would think is that for Angie Angie to work, which it does, I think, brilliantly, the two characters... Well, certainly Roger Moore's character has got to have a degree of trust in Danny Wilde, hasn't he? Mm. Because he's actually very patient with him. And yep. ultimately, he saves his life. He saves the whole situation. Now, if that had come straight after the pilot, is there enough history there between the two of them for that trust to work? Mm. I think sometimes trust has to build up. I, I might be seeing too much in there.
4: That is a good point. Yes, they, they need to know each other as people, as where they were within the relationship. Like you say, trust is the key word. Just to come back to one small point on the judge, as well as being the third wheel. In all the other ITC stories, you've got like your Hardy in Danger Man, Templeton Green in The Baron, and these are straight up, straight down guys. These are fairly sort of limited dimension characters. But the other thing to note, and the other thing I like about the judge is that he is an anti-establishment establishment figure. Basically, he's vigilante.
5: He's at times a very shifty character. You know, he will deliberately tell lies. And then afterwards, he'll say, well, look, if I told you the truth, would you have done the mission, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So there are sort of layers to him. But
4: coming back to my earlier point, the judge is essentially a vigilante. So now he's retired, he's writing wrongs that he couldn't deal with within the system. So essentially, even though we dismiss, well, we don't dismiss it, even though we treat program as a bit of fluff and entertainment, light entertainment, whatever, these guys, nine times out of 10, if not 10 times out of 10, they're acting outside the law. That's, that's a pretty hefty concept, really, for a, an entertainment program.
3: Yeah, and I think that, that often gets missed as well by casual viewers.
5: And there are deeper moments with with it, aren't there? I mean, we talked about Angie's if it's a sort of one-off. But, you know, something like someone like me, when you basically got Brett Sinclair going around, I think he describes it himself as, I'm a human grenade. That's a really interesting episode because you've got lots of sort of comedy and humour but actually there is quite a darker narrative going through it as well and, and those tend to be my favourite Persuaders episodes mm-hmm. where you have got a slice of drama to go with the wonderful relationship and chemistry between the two characters.
4: Particularly in that episode as you say where you've got for want of a better phrase the robot Brit beating up Danny and, and essentially trying to kill him. That is a pretty vicious incident. And the other sort of comparison on on that episode I would draw uh, would be that that reflects a lot on Mr. Pelham, the man who haunted himself. It seems to be a very similar setup.
3: There's a theme, though, isn't there, running through the Persuaders about identity. Lots Mm. of the time, it's about mistaken identity or them trying to pretend to
5: be someone else. People feeling that Danny Wilde is someone else as well. He gets into that sort of scenario quite a few times, doesn't he? Yeah. Through no fault of his own, he's in the wrong place at the wrong time or says the wrong thing. And
4: and, and of course, the, the classic staple of crime shows or whatever ad infinitum is they end up dealing with people who aren't who they think they are. So you've got a, a running theme of identity from both sides of the curtain.
3: So the budget for this show was ITC's biggest budget at the time. It was two and a half million, which I've Googled how much that would be equivalent to roughly today. And it's around 40 million pounds. It was the most expensive British TV series shot at the point of that time. And I think a lot of the money obviously went on screen. The sets are fantastic. They pulled no strings when it came to getting the best cars. They got great casts. Obviously, they spent a fortune going to the south of France to do those first six or seven episodes. For me, this is a show as well that is kind of like, a bit like a football match, a game of two halves, because you get the European kind of episodes, Mm. which really do show off the sort of sun and the gloss of -hmm. this at its peak. But then you move back to England, where it's autumnal and winter, and you get the other side of it, especially the London episodes... The time and the place I particularly love. All that sequence around the Tower of London, which is beautifully directed by Roger Moore, actually. There's real cinematic feel to some of those shots, especially the shot where he's walking towards the camera, but it's filmed through the sort of end of ring part of the canon.
5: So I mean, weirdly, I'd say I I think the countryside is far more memorable than London. Uh if you compare it to Men in a Suitcase, well, we haven't got the London locations of there. The Tower of London is great. I love the outside of Brett Sinclair's apartment, etc. But I think it really does some wonderful things with the countryside in those various episodes.
3: So you're That's... thinking then of, say, for example, Greensleeves and a home of one's own. I mean, yeah. Greensleeves is an absolute brilliant episode.
4: Yeah. To come back on the, the difference between South of France and Coming Home, I feel that it, the continental locations lift the show so much. And we've talked about routine scripts. You've got that spectacle. You've got that coming into a context where in this country at that time, foreign holidays are still a bit of a wow. Package holidays go to package places. These are really exotic places, places some people probably would never have seen and will never we'll never see. They may, may go to their other holidays. But I just think it gives the whole thing room to expand, room to breathe, and it just adds so much more to it. I mean, if you look at the Persuaders Road movie five miles to midnight when they're doing some of the sequences through there Great in the open, open, open countryside it's just gorgeous and you can you can feel that is what itc shows have been stretching for for years it's not a pot plant in boreham wood and a bit of the back lot it is absolutely stunning but then flip side of that is sometimes when you come back home it does feel autumnal and it can feel a bit flat but as Rodney said, when they do exploit some of the countryside, it is go- it is just as
5: gorgeous, probably. Well, I mean, Tony described it as European series, didn't he? Mm-hmm. A- and it is as wonderful, as you say, that those European locations. And again, talking about where it comes in time, not only is it the end of a decade of ITC action-adventure, this is probably the, the last decade where you could have done that filming in places like the Côte d'Azur. I remember Roger Moore saying on one of the audio commentaries. You couldn't part there now. This isn't just the end of action-adventure series in the 60s. This is the end of, of the exclusive Cote d'Azier. The authorities down there really pulled the stops out to let them have access
3: literally everywhere. they closed off the streets for them to film. They loved having those two stars there, and they literally bent over backwards to accommodate the crew
5: and the cast, it was the best advert they could have had, really, you know. Oh, you, but look you, at the size you, of Nice Airport in, in those episodes. It's minute, isn't it? <laughs> you know, It's enormous now.
4: It is the spectacle of the thing. It's half the draw. It, it's just glitz and glamour. And like I said, it, it's like a giant martini advert. It, it's from that generation, from that time.
3: You can almost feel the sun beating on your face.
4: Yes. But that's oh, the feeling yes. I
3: get of it. A bit. You know, like yeah. you said, that road movie of Five Miles to Midnight when they are up in those mountains, you think like, God, I can feel the warmth of that radiating through my TV screen.
4: Yeah, and power switch when they're doing the water skiing, that is so damn exotic, and that is so sort of take you away, take you out of yourself, and you you can literally immerse yourself in that scene.
5: Well, that five miles to midnight, there is that wonderful emotive moment, and Roger Moore plays it quite straight, when he's explaining that he's had this accident in a Grand Prix, and he felt nothing. Mm -hmm. And that he needed almost a sense of danger or excitement. Almost he'd been numb. And now he's got a sense that he's alive again. I got the feeling watching that again last week that that's played quite straight. He's actually being honest and saying Brett Sinclair needs to feel alive again.
4: Yeah, it's one of of the the frankest (laughs) pieces of dialogue in the thing. And what I also love about it is that it ties in so neatly to someone waiting many episodes later.
3: I think Terry Nation did quite a good job on the script editing, actually, to keep things moving along, but also to keep that level of humour. And I know that he's been sort of slated over the years for plagiarising himself when it comes to things Mm -hmm. like writing a Saint episode and then when it came to the Baron, reusing it virtually exactly the same. (laughs) And he does a bit of that, as we've mentioned, like Chain of Events. He's got nods to Stay Tuned, which is an Avengers episode, there are some great sort of little nods as well to films in here. A Death in the Family is a little nod to Kind Hearts and Coronets. And Chain of Events itself is a nod to Tony's appearance in The Defiant Ones. So I think Nation did a pretty good job personally.
5: Well, I mean, Greensleeves is, is a huge nod to Takeover, which originally was a Terry Nation Avengers script. But I never feel it's um, cheap recycling. It's the Emperor's New Clothes. There's only a certain number of action-adventure ideas. And uh, as long as you do something inventive with it, and they certainly do in an episode like Greensleeves, I mean, what great fun is that? You've got almost Scooby-Doo-type subterranean tunnels. You've got the sword fighting, which Jazz mentioned earlier. I, I, I love the wonderful snobbery in that episode where Brett Sinclair is lording it over the hired help Danny and you know you talked earlier jazz about roger being a a a good actor how seedy is he is that sort of grubby down a hill actor when he goes to the hiring place in Mm. london
4: i'm going to pull it back on terry nation scripting and the film references (laughs) you've obviously got in the old new and the deadly you've got your maltese falcon episode and you mentioned death in the family I, i think that really reflects terry's earlier life as a gag writer bang 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 the first five or six minutes culminating with where brett says you really shouldn't joke in here and then that that first five minutes you've had solid bang 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 jokes
5: i think it's far too easy to put people like terry nation down i mean terry nation like my father would be described as a hack writer because they tended to write for tv series but i mean this is a guy who invented the survivors who invented and wrote the whole first season of Blake Seven. He created a Daleks. His CV, if you, if you put it together, would look pretty impressive, I'd say. I think he's come up for criticism, particularly because of that episode of
3: The Saint that got recycled into The Baron. But I think a lot of that was to do with <clears throat> pressure because Monty Berman wanted so many episodes when it came to the Baron. You know, he wanted 30 episodes. He wouldn't have done with 28. So as the main script writer and script editor in that show, he had to find ideas. And like you say, Emperor's New Clothes, how many stories are there? There's only a certain yeah. number. I like all the fact that he did some quite nice little nods to the films, and I think that's probably for Tony and... Danny's character, always referencing Hollywood movies and Hollywood film stars. <laughs> but I love the fact as well that he calls Brett on a number of occasions, Stanley, where he's, he sees them as Stan and Ollie. But Oliver there is an and, element
5: of that about them, isn't there?
4: Oh, yes. Ultimately, it's, it's a superb compliment because it, it is the cinematic buddy-buddy relationship.
5: And there is a slapstick element to Mm -hmm. The Persuaders, which, again, I don't see as a negative. I see it as part of almost a sort of screwball comedy element. But I mean, in terms of sort of referencing films, uh, referencing The Saint, The Avengers, whatever it is, I see that as part of sort of almost a rich intertextuality. I think it's part of the fun. I just want to say
3: where you said about that slapstick. I mean, they couldn't have been more slapstick when they did that fight sequence in Someone <laughs> Waiting, where they made the film sepia tone, and like diddly, 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 yeah.
5: you know. And that, that scene goes, works yeah. really well, doesn't it?
4: Like when you take the, the couple of fights in Overture, they're very, very similar, done in a very broad, tongue-in-cheek manner, and you can't have anything more tongue-in-cheek than Nosha Powell being a, a fine-dining gentleman.
5: But you see, I think the cliches become part of the fun. The cliches of whether they're both sort of locked inside some basement or shed or whatever else, that actually, it's not a negative side to it. it, it it's part of the whole sort of comedy and tongue in cheek humour. And as I say, winking back at the shows that probably took some of those scenarios seriously.
3: So what about the theme and the titles then? I mean, this again, this is where the the money is no object in this show. They bring in John Barry, who is the Bond composer, the biggest film franchise, spy franchise of the time. You know, Bond was huge. So what do they do? They say, right, we'll have John Barry do our theme. No offence to Edwin Astley or any of the other composers who'd worked on the 60s ITC shows, but... John Barry is, he won Oscars for his music. This is the biggest film composer in the world. And his theme is glorious. I love the use of the sort of symbolum, which is that gives it that sort of Russian, Eastern European feel. And then that narrative in that opening titles where you get the passports and it plays out that you see them growing up as children and then young men where they
5: went to school. That is like a little film in itself. That's almost a pilot before the pilot as well, isn't
4: it? I mean, the theme, you can say it is one of the most memorable television themes ever. That is an amazing theme, June. It really, really was memorable. And as you say, the, the credits set out the stall. This, this is what you're going to get. You're going to get gloss. You're going to get adventure. You're going to get glamour.
5: They're so cinematic as well, aren't they? And mm-hmm. we talked and about And it's interesting this. they stuck with them after you get back to the UK episodes. You'd sort of think that maybe halfway through they might have done a sort of a UK credits version. And I love the fact that we're in Britain in autumn, but we've still got that warm for the coat d'Azur in the opening titles. I, I love that.
0: I was
3: going to say about the series looking cinematic. There are so many cinematic touches in this. I mean, you couldn't get more cinematic than that split screen car chase in Overture.
4: I don't know if it was ever seen in television before. It was it was the sort of process they were using in Grand Prix and Le Mans, the films, those two films of the mid to late 60s. It added another dimension to it. The chase across the Corniche in general is a fantastic piece of film. And again, moving on from the credits, that is another sort of establishment sequence for the show, really.
3: What about Tony Curtis's gloves and also his (laughs) uh, changing hair colour? He stopped dyeing his hair about halfway through. I think when they moved back to the UK, he kind of thought, I'm going to let myself go grey.
4: I've got no strong opinions either way on either issue, (laughs) to be perfectly honest. The only point at which I really ever noticed the gloves or noticed the gloves was when he does the hand-washing scene in the foundry. That was part of the comedy of that foundry sequence. There were some very nice little touches in there as he went through.
5: Well, I think he described it as his little idiosyncrasy in a couple of interviews. And Mm -hmm. again, I think it's quite fun. One of the things that people always say to me is like, why did Tony Curtis always
3: wear those gloves? And to be honest, I've always said, it's just because it's Tony Curtis, you know? Mm. It doesn't have to be a reason. That's just something he wanted to do. If that's what he wanted to do, you just let him get on with it. But why not? Brett's family stories, they're always a sort of fun little part to an episode. They become a set piece, don't they?
4: They are Brett, basically. As, as the gloves are to Danny, the stories are to Brett. And, and, and they, all, they never fail to amuse. Essentially, to me, very Roger. He, he loved his little jokes. <laughs>
3: We've got some great writers in there. I would like to say that I think that Brian Clements does a really good job in this series. I know that I've been slightly critical of some of his work in some of the podcasts we've done in the past, but I think this is Clements at his best. I think the sort of gloves are off for him now. He's not doing the co-producer. He's not doing the script editor. He's not being the, the main script writer. He's brought in, this is your job. This is your task. Just write some episodes. And I think there's a sense of freedom in his writing in these.
5: I would go as far as to say that, for me, that's me over there is as good as The Persuaders gets. I love everything in the episode from the secret red telephone, these charming henchmen interrogators, the the wonderful funeral stonemason's yard. There's some wonderful out-of-focus stuff, which I guess was in the script. I love the auction scenes. I think they're brilliant. And then you've got the mummy tag at the end.
4: That's Me Over There has got to be the second most dramatic script against Angie Angie. Because Thaddeus Crane is a real git, and you really take pleasure in seeing how it unwinds. I mean, you look at stuff like The Death of, of the um, Informer. The Death of the Informer is, qu- is quite a hard thing for, for such a show as this. The rooftop chase and, and the fall off the roof. That's quite strong and as I say, you just want to see Thaddeus Crane gets his just dessert, and it's, it's a nice little piece of plotting.
5: There's no one better at combining wit and darkness. And as you say, Smudge, so there is darkness in there, but, but there is an awful lot of wit in that episode as well.
4: It's that wonderful counterpoint of the humour to what is really, in terms of The Persuaders, one of the darkest stories.
3: Then we've got Val Guest, who wrote one. There's quite a funny little story about Val Guest. He'd been asked to do The Persuaders, And originally he said no. And then one night he got a knock on the door and there's Roger and Tony at the door saying, why aren't you going to do our series then? And they invited them in. And within a couple of minutes of meeting them and just chatting to them, he agreed to do one. So he wrote one, he even directed one as well. So I I like the little stories like that. Milton S. Gelman, who was the American who was brought in to oversee the scripts really for uh, ABC in America, because ABC had bought this show on the understanding that it was just a show that Luke Grade had put to them that had Tony Curtis and Roger Moore in it. They'd not seen a pilot. They'd not seen a script. They bought it just on those two names. So he was brought in just to oversee things like particularly smoking. Ironic really when, <laughs> when you got Tony Curtis, who's uh, <laughs> pretending to be the head of the anti-smoking lobby, but before he could get go needed his cannabis every day he was quite hot on the word use of the word mafia in five miles to midnight and that had to be changed to organized crime syndicate. <laughs> and that episode was not shown in Italy for years because of the implications of that episode. I didn't know that until I went to Italy one day where I'd been invited over for the Italian DVDs. The Italians were telling me all oh, five miles to midnight is first time we're ever going to see it. It's like, why, why that? And then they told me the story. So anyway, I digress. But, um, other writers, Michael Pertwee, who was part of the Pertwee clan, you know, John Pertwee um, was his brother, I believe. Donald James, Walter Black, who I think wrote a great episode in The Morning After. Tony Barwick, Peter Yeldon, and David Rolf and Tony Barwick co-wrote an episode together. Any, any of those script writers particularly jump out at you?
4: Milt Gelman. He doesn't seem to have done a great deal for his retainer, if it's just about smoking in the mafia, but whatever. But Angie Angie. We have to talk about that, I suppose, in terms of how much of that was Milt Gelman and how much of that was Tony Curtis, really. Whoever conceived it, it is one of the best episodes. There's an unfortunate thing in the production of it at the end, I think, because I think the editor cuts to Larry Storch's death too soon and it makes it look like he was waiting for a cue. But the story as a whole is excellent and it would have been interesting to see if it had happened as it was originally conceived and the, and the firefight at the end happened in darkness. I mean, it was a good enough firefight as it was, but it would have been fascinating to see how it turned out in, as actually scripted.
5: I mean, I love the fact that you've got a Cannes Film Festival backdrop, which I think is great. I <laughs> loved the grinning blonde, Marissa, who, <laughs> Jazz will correct me because he's watched them 5,000 times. I don't think Marissa says a single word, does she? She's okay. quite sinister. And there's not one word in the script. And that is the episode where they are really forced the two actors to show genuine animosity and Roger Moore isn't equal to Tony Curtis in that respect. And I love the drugged uh, drink scene. I love the episode. It's a bit of
3: a Marmite one. My only thing is is I found Larry Storch a bit grating at times, personally.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, well,
5: he, is a, he is a serial killer. Well, serial killer. He's an assassin. So do we want him to be too charming?
4: I think it's a fault in the performance to be honest he, he is a bit but there, there are some nice little touches like the the guys are almost at dra- daggers drawn with each other it is very tense and there's nice little things like that little interchange when danny and brett are talking and brett just sort of sums it up with the the phrase everything changes even old friends because danny is desperate to see things as they were to see th- see the relationship still is as as they grew up in the bronx
5: oh, i love those bronx monochrome images and they almost take us back to the main titles in a weird way, don't they? Sort of. It's...
4: They do because they do actually. One of those images actually appears in the main titles. Mm-hmm. You you said it was a Marmite episode. I, because of Larry, I had a huge stumbling block with it. <laughs> but looking at it now, looking at it in the last week, literally, I've got a much greater appreciation for it. It is no, it's a fine episode. It's it's up there in the top two or three.
5: I know, I totally agree. I think it's only a Marmite episode if you've got a very fixed idea of what The Persuaders is.
4: Interestingly, in terms of the writers, Roger chose to direct both of Michael Pertwee's scripts. I wonder if there's any sort Mm. of anything to that at all. Do you know, Jess?
3: I don't know, but he said from the start that he was going to direct some episodes. Oh. And I think he saw them, all the scripts coming in. Remember, he was a third equal partner in the mm. company, Tribune, that made this. So he would have seen every script coming through the office. And if I should imagine he probably saw it and thought, I like that one. I'm going to do that one. And I have to say, his directing was really good. Well, I interviewed Roger about a year before he died. And I spent a lot of time talking about him and Tony's relationship from the point of Roger being the director. Roger said that Tony never gave him any grief when he was directing and said that he was absolutely brilliant to work with for a director because he just knew where all the cuts were coming. And that's something actually that Roy Ward Baker said himself.
5: Well, I was about to say with Roy Ward Baker, I know he said that he thought that Tony Curtis was a bit of a shit and he was rude. He said actually as a technician, he was perfect
4: you've got a bunch of experienced film directors here you've got basil dearden you've got roy ward baker you've got leslie norman who is a bit more journeyman to me but what you have to say particularly on the strength of the time and the place roger's direction can match them it was in december 64 in tv times roger said he was drawing the, the saint to a close and he expressed an interest in that article, in directing rather than producing. And one of the St. crew said, and I quote, Roger is just about the most unsnobbish director I know. For example, if a mirror or picture needs straightening, He'll do it himself most directors would just send for a minion roger pushes in with all of us that way he gets our full cooperation for me in the time and the place two of the standout sequences the discovery of the car when they're pulling the car out where he places the camera at the start of the, the sequence where he puts it in how he moves the camera how he cuts it's not just his directing it's his editing working with his editor and like you say that sequence In the Tower of London, you've got to look at the camera movement. I mean, yes, you've got you've got that roundel, you've got the hoop of the cannon. That's your framing shot. But then the camera moves, and you move with it, and you don't notice. And it is it's a it's a really good flowing sequence, and again a well cut sequence. And finally, in that episode, look at how he cuts the sequence of the rolling car absolutely professionally done and, and he's up he's a bit more restricted with the long goodbye but he's got a couple of good sequences where you've got the chase sequences and the taxi recreating the journey easily i would say roger's directing is up to par with um, his peers on the series
5: I'm a huge fan of Roy Woodbaker, full stop. And I think it, he directs um, some sublime episodes. I mean, again, someone like me, I think a lot of the direction in that, particularly the sort of surreal elements. I think The Persuaders does really well. There's a lot of episodes that deal with either sort of drug-induced or, as I say, with the NGNG episode. Again, you've got that sort of drug drink scene. Again, that sort of end of 60s, beginning of 70s feel about it. And I think. Uh, Roy Wood Baker does that beautifully.
3: I was going to mention Peter Hunt because I really like the direction and Chain of Events, you know, especially when he's got the camera in, almost lying in the ditch the ditch. That's with a wonderful and moment. They, and they jump over, Tony jumps over and then the guy chasing him jumps over. I love all the little tongue-in-cheek gags he does in it, like where he opens the case and there's the, mm-hmm. all the James Bond paperbacks, <laughs> but on top yep. is the film he directed on A Majesty's Secret Service, which is, again, my mm-hmm. favourite Bond film. I just think that chain of events in terms of direction is is wonderful
5: it's an episode where the script is maybe five out of ten and actually the direction almost brings it up to sort of seven or eight out of ten doesn't it
4: and the other element of uh, chain of events that I also love is this is the Stuntman's episode. You've got so many uh, of the, the known faces, the stunt crew. And, of course, obviously, we've got that lovely little touch with the camping sequence. <laughs> no, I
5: mean, yeah. the, gla- the glamping is wonderful, isn't it? <laughs> and actually, it is an example. You know, Brett Sinclair has a... Uh, Obviously, we're not talking about maybe quite three dimensional characters, but he is quite pompous mm-hmm. and never more so than with his glamping. And he almost sort of looks down on Wilde sort of doing what presumably the whole idea of camping is about getting back to nature. He hasn't been back to nature at all, has he? Yeah.
4: He can be a little sort of snobby. But again, like I said earlier, that I think that's what builds the part of the relationship.
5: Well, he is a
3: peer of the realm as well, isn't he? So he's been to Harrow School. He knows all of those upper crust things that those people do, whereas Tony's been from the slums of the Bronx. So I think that contrast is lovely.
4: I mean, that, that right. lovely little sort of snippet in Someone Waiting where the proposed hitman, Donald Pickering, is creeping up on him and he, he tells him, cheap aftershave, old darling. Yeah. To, to, they, too they, much they alcohol gave, in it. Too much mm. alcohol left in there. The very, very, very sort of money, sort of class-ridden comment.
3: I mean you mentioned there about Basil Dearden that was really tragic and sad about him for listeners who don't know. He sadly died in a car crash on the motorway during the production of The Persuaders and in a very similar car accident to the accident in the film The Man Who Haunted Himself with Roger that he directed only a year or so previously. It's, It's really sad when you hear It it's the same that.
5: location
3: wasn't it
4: it was the m4 yeah. that same sort of trip of the m4 terrible oh, yeah. terrible coincidence
3: but um we move on peter medak did one i thought he was quite good leslie norman i felt was the, like you say journeyman and he did things like nuisance value I i don't know if he if he shouted at tony i can't imagine he would have because uh, he had a reputation of being a real shouter. Lots of the people I've interviewed have said that he used to bellow at people. Sue Lloyd, I remember, used to say the way he got his acting was to bellow at people. Jenny Linden said he used to shout a lot. I can't imagine Leslie Norman shouting at Tony Curtis, because Tony Curtis would have told him to turn around and go and do one. Sydney Hayes, I thought, was quite good on directing. And David Green, I liked. He did green sleeves. I thought that was great fun. Yes, very, very good. Uh, James Hill and Gerald Mayer.
4: Peter Medak, the construction of Someone Waiting. I mean, this is, as and Rodney knows I'm going to say this, this is the mariaki episode, the Persuaders, (laughs) isn't it? But it's as different, again, as the construction in Man in a Suitcase was. There's some lovely little touches uh, in Someone Waiting with the, the coffin and the um, automated slide sequence but the standout thing is the way he directs and the performance he pulls from john kearney when they're reliving that crash that is such a well realized sequence
5: the sound effects are brilliant on that
3: and the camera beneath his knees, so he's yes, the camera is like ample. in the steering wheel position. Mm. There's also a lovely bit as well with that episode where Danny and Brett are just going into that deserted farmhouse, and there's a real kind of Avengers type shot where that he's filming through some glass, and they're at the door, and you mm. kind of you kind of see distorted versions of them. And then, and then they open the door and come into shot. I thought that was yes.
5: really nicely done.
4: That's that's a,
3: Does that that's a mean cracking... you've
5: mellowed out about that episode, Jazz? Because you used to say you didn't like that one.
3: Well, it wasn't I didn't like it. I think that I watched it so much that I didn't yeah. really. You know, it goes back to the days when the persuaders wasn't really available on video before DVD, where all we had were like the Precision videos or the Channel Five videos. And I was never a fan of those um, things like London Conspiracy, where they cut the episodes up and gave you a sort of a flavour of most of the episode. And I always felt that someone waiting in in that sort of chopped up version just didn't kind of work in the way that, as a single episode, it works so much better.
5: I mean, I think someone waiting has got so many fantastic touches from the dummy on the track to, mm-hmm. as you yeah. said earlier about the cheap aftershave, that mini coffin with Roger Moore's photograph, the black and white barroom scene we've already talked about. There's yeah. that wonderful empty house with sort of dolls, houses and stuffed cats and heaven knows what else in it. And, you know, Smudge has said about their reliving the car crash, which is actually a very emotive moment.
4: It's a very strong moment. And another, to bring. come back to Jazz's point that started this run, that glass and the door <laughs> shot, that's a real sort of Peter Hammond style shot, if you remember yeah. how Peter, Peter Hammond directed. And there's another absolutely belting, tiny little touch in someone waiting. It's just a tiny, tiny thing. But if you notice it, you notice it. When Lyndon's in the door of the old dark house and he's been stabbed and he falls backwards and he falls down the stairs, there's that wonderful fisheye lens shot, which in itself is good. But then, as he gets to the bottom of the stairs, and goodness knows how he set this up and how they measured it, as he, as he just trundles down at the bottom of the stairs, he does a tiny, tiny pullback with the camera, which I think is an absolutely belting shot.
3: That stairs uh, is <laughs> my little game of spot how many times <laughs> that, set, that stair set is used virtually yep. every episode. I was going to quickly go back to where you Smudge said about Roger Moore directing. If you watch that Avro Scoop documentary that is part of the special features that my great friend Remco Admiral found, rediscovered that in Holland. Roger there talks about moving on from being an actor and moving into directing. That's what he wanted to do. He'd always had an eye on being a director. I was gonna mention as well, Sydney Hayes directing on Take Seven and The Death in the Family. Cause I think there's some lovely little touches in both of those episodes.
4: Death in the Family is probably the best guest cast that you get for the series. You've got Denham Elliot, you've got Willie Rushton, you've got some absolutely top-flight actors. And and it, it is, as, as Bob Baker said, steal from the best. And it, and it is just kind arts and coronets. And Roger is enjoying himself, and he, he's chewing the scenery with vengeance when he's Aunt Agatha. It is, is his finest Edith Evans impression, I think. Really nicely done episode. Which one is the James Hill episode? Remind me
3: a home of one's own, which okay. I think is quite fun.
4: Yeah, it's persuade as Light. It's lovely. It's a lovely little episode. It's good fun. You've got the old dark house sort of scenario and, and you've got some cracking little lines like when Brett says to Danny, you'll get your piece, little piece of England. Spadeful by spadeful, as Jazz has observed before, he leaps over everything. He leaps <laughs> bang, 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 or over that gate. Cannot walk through the gate the tiny little sleeper gag at the end when the gate clicks open lovely yeah. nice, nice little touch and the, and of course the slapstick ending with the single nail bringing the yeah. whole of this this dream house down it, it it is a really memorable episode james hill yes why didn't they use him again i wonder he directed some classic episodes of the avengers
5: In a way, to me, it makes sense that you've got so many writers and directors who'd worked on The Avengers because Persuaders is the closest ITC will come, I think, to that tongue-in-cheek, this is a pastiche, we're not taking ourselves seriously. Mm -hmm. And uh, these are guys who'd who'd worked on those shows. And uh, as you said earlier, Jazz, I mean, Brian Clemens, who you could argue became an egomaniac in The Avengers because he was trying to do too many things. Mm -hmm. Here, he's doing one thing he's doing it bloody well, isn't he?
4: You were saying about the Avengers touch and thing, because we're coming back to Sydney Hayes and take seven. I love the little sequence in the barbershop. I, I said it was sort of very Avengers in, in terms of design.
3: Yeah, that's a lovely little set. And I love the, I love the fact that Tony shaves the judge and then he does that, <laughs> he's doing the Groucho Marx, Groucho Marx and all of that. Yes. Yeah.
4: There are so many little sort of standout points in any of these episodes, really.
5: I mean, the farmer, we've mentioned the farmer very briefly. And obviously he's one of the few characters who appears more than once. How delightful is he? Mm-hmm. Because he's a little out there. I love the fact he's in this sort of London park with his sheep dog. And I think he could have been used more often.
4: I think the same goes for Prue. I would have loved to have seen Juliet Armer's character. recurring. That's probably more- for
5: a different reason.
4: She was a a good character. It added an element. It it sort of solidifies a concept about Brett and his sort of gut about ways and his society friends. And, And I think they should have used her a little bit more.
3: Yeah, well, she was quite a strong woman. When I um, interviewed Juliet Harmer, she said what she liked about the character is that she wasn't a 60s dolly bird. You know, she had a mm-hmm. sense of freedom. You know, she's kind of rescued Brett, and that's me over there. You know, there were a few stronger female characters. In there, I mean Emily Major in Chain of Events. You know Susanna Lee; she's high up in the MI5 organisation or whatever. And Hannah Gordon's character, I thought, was an inspector in the police, a sort of constable yeah. or whatever. So right, someone
5: waiting. She's a journalist, isn't she?
3: People say, oh, all the women in The um, Persuaders were just there for sort of eye candy, but I don't necessarily agree
5: with that. I think they're only ever two-dimensional. I think Nicola Paget's character,
4: at the end of the episode, Long Goodbye, she has the strength of character to throw away all that money to burn the formula. That is a, a pretty strong lady.
5: Yeah, I think that's as powerful mm-hmm. as you get, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. she really is putting everything before money.
3: I'd really like to talk about some of the guest stars. Terry Thomas, Joe Collins, Susan George, Juliet Harmer, Sinead Cusack, Ian Hendry, Patrick Troughton, Anna Gale, Annette Andre, Bernard Lee, George Baker,
5: Peter Vaughan, Geoffrey Keane, Susan Farmer, Catherine Shell, Denham Elliott, Gladys Cooper. As much as it almost pains me to say it, I think Joan Collins is brilliant as Sidoni
4: absolutely i mean i I, I think
5: she she, she's sort of wild she's fun i think she's absolutely brilliant in the park
4: when you've got the opening sequence in the flat not just with roger but when tony comes in you've got a brilliant triangle she just sparks with those two guys and she's got the funkies flat that sort of redolent of the swinging 60s blow up sort of thing but when the three of them are talking you can see how well she fits into this setup
3: Wonderful Again. sets in this, in this series, so wonderful sets.
4: Yeah, I mean, that shows from the minute you, you walk into the judges' villa at the very first episode, you can see, you said a while ago about the money coming onto the screen and the set design, they, I think Bob Baker said they knew they had to push it up a notch to get the sort of effect they wanted. You've got two-minute sets, literally, where you've got a scene that's going a minute and a half, and yet you look at it in the context of the show and you can't think, oh yes, they skimped on that set. Because it was just a, a blink and you'll miss it piece. You remind me of the episode the bar where they've got the peanuts on the deck.
3: Element of risk.
4: Element of risk that little bar, and then in Death in the Family, the, the little set they created for Onslow. A couple of next to nothing scenes, really.
5: Oh, well, there's um, nightclub sets. They're sublime. Yeah,
4: the standards never slip.
3: Hairdresser set you've already mentioned, but that literally is just a, a setup for the episode. It's not very long on screen. You were mentioning
5: actors, sorry, Jess. Um, Rosemary Nichols, who I don't think you mentioned in there. Mm. And we were defending her the other week in Man in a Suitcase. I'd defend her again here. I thought she was brilliant in Greensleeves.
4: She and Roger carry a big section of Greensleeves. They really do. As you say, can't falter. In Greensleeves, she's probably better than Kia and Tom Adams.
3: It's not like she's just playing a, a regular dolly Bird part, you know she gets on the
5: horse and she does the horse riding sequence and i mean that's a rare episode also where we do have a couple of black actors because it's not a show not what you would expect uh, given the time um that would be multi-ethnic but you know you've got cy grant and clifton jones in that episode and And uh, i think yep and i think they're both fantastic
3: and also that cy grant's one of brett's best old school buddies
0: Yes, Yes.
4: Mm -hmm. Yes. he knows the secret handshake. Yeah,
3: well, secret handshake, like you say, sneaky is best. Sneaky is is best,
4: oh, you've got to mention sneaky is best. It's such such a brilliant catchphrase.
3: Terry Thomas came in as a favour to Bob Baker because I think Bob had given him one of his very earliest screen roles um, when he was starting out, and Bob called in
5: a favour. Ian Hendry. I mm -hmm. mean, Ian Hendry, I think, is about as close as we get to... He's quite a dark villain, and he is almost three-dimensional, isn't he, in that episode? He can play the charming Lord Croxley, but actually he's quite close to some of those you know, episodes we've mentioned in shows like Gideon's Way and The Saint, those sort of political episodes. He's about as close as we get here to a sort of political character, isn't he? It's a coup d'etat, isn't it? And they're talking about bringing down the British government with
3: the assassination of the Prime Minister live on screen.
5: And a television studio I love that extra layer you know here we are watching a TV show and someone Prime Minister might get bumped off in another TV studio type thing and there's some lovely comedy despite the fact there are darker elements to that I love the sequence under the table when Tony Curtis is asking do you want a sandwich or you know cracker or whatever and...
3: So we should talk really about the success of the show, because we've talked a lot about the making of it and the production. But the show really was a huge, huge success. ITC sold it to every country in the world that had television broadcasting, with the exception of the Soviet Union, China and Albania, which is some feat for (laughs) a show at the time. And it won awards, you know, it won awards in Spain, Australia, germany it was top of the rankings here it was hugely popular in france and spain and everywhere the only place it wasn't really a a big success was in the us where it needed to be a success but i mean it, it did sit in prime time and it was shown in prime time we've talked about this before and it made a lot of money, not only for ITC, but it made a lot of money for Tribune, um, who's the production company behind it. I, I, I argue that actually this is a hugely successful TV series.
0: Mm-hmm. I
5: think this fits in with, with Tony Curtis saying about the European aspect. I, I think this is a show which um, has that sort of um, quintessential Englishness in the, in the shape of Brett Sinclair, but also it, it's got that European glamour. So I think it it was a a show that, that's perfect for a global audience, isn't
4: it? Yeah, I think it had pretty much a universal appeal.
5: It was
3: never going to be a huge success in America because it was up against Mission Impossible, which is, mm-hmm. you know, into its, I don't know, sixth season or something like that. It was well-established, a firm favourite. It was never going to win a ratings war there. But mm-hmm. um, rest Gosh. of the world...
4: I think there's a problem at the time i don't know whether it still exists well it probably still exists now the industry over the pond seemed to be somewhat fickle and it didn't give new television a chance to develop or grow or sometimes literally just find an audience and and again a lot of that is down to the schedulers do you really want to put into bat against some of your big hitters like mission impossible initially why don't you try the water in an earlier time
5: slot or something did um, Tony Curtis not say that he felt that this was actually a family audience programme? It needed to be on at a time when actually perhaps 14, 15 year olds would be watching it as well. That's one of the reasons it, it was
3: so popular here in the UK, because it was shown in a time slot that was, you know, around 7.30. I know that the series wasn't networked, as in shown up in every region at the same time, but it was shown at that time slot, which meant that it was a family show that younger children say seven years old or whatever could sit down and watch it with their mums and dads and older brothers and sisters that's why it was hugely hugely popular it was always in the top 20 in the ratings and hence the spin-off merchandise i know everyone says oh there wasn't that much but i mean i'm sat in in my archive there's 30 or 40 boxes of persuaders merchandise here that's from around the world so i can, can can guarantee you this show in terms of merchandise was absolutely huge.
4: I think what essentially kept the momentum in terms of us as we were then, the kids in the, in the playground, was the fact that you had so many comic book appearances.
3: Countdown and TV action, well, the strip ran from 71 to 73. You know, as late as 73, there were still persuaders there in people's minds, even though the show had ceased production two years previous.
4: And of course, we had quite a, a sort of quick succession of repeats as well. It really was so widely spoken about beforehand, during and afterwards. And, it is, and it's one of those series which generated a hell of a lot of affection. And people have only got to hear the opening bars of that theme. They're there, they're back in the 1970s, and and they can imagine sitting there, watching it on a small black and white TV and loving every minute of it.
5: And some of that slapstick comedy was almost timeless, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm thinking of uh, In To The Deaf Baby, an episode I don't think we've mentioned, with the fight with his shepherd's hooks. Mm-hmm. And then that shepherd comes back in <laughs> so towards the end. And that wonderful sort of rocket car, which is sort of advertising something. What was it advertising? Soap. Soap, yeah, yes. and, um, Soap girl. <clears throat> Leon. I just, I just love something. those slightly out there, just fun little elements.
4: Yeah, I mean you've got the nice little rickety cottage and the way he's decorating it, he de- decorates it in a very slapdash way, in a very slapstick way and the nice little gag of falling through the stairs which sleeps and then actually manages to catch one of the villains and it, it, it's all those sort of silly little humorous touches that... Uh, I
5: mean, That's almost a Laurel and Hardy touch isn't it?
4: It is, it is but uh, and like Jazz said it was a, it was at a time slot where we could sit and watch it and we loved it i mean it was just good pure escapist fun
5: and with hindsight what a beautifully innocent show at the beginning of a decade which is going to be fairly brutal i was just thinking
3: there about where you've said those things about the slapstick and the comedy but also there were some lovely touches some by pure chance i'm just happening to think of the start of the car chase in Overture where they're at the traffic lights and they're revving their engines. And as they go green, both cars pull away and then you get that passenger jet taken off at the same time. And Johnny Goodman told me that that was pure accident that it happened like that, but it looked absolutely spectacular on screen. And there's no way that they could have planned to do that or if they have tried to set it up, it would have ever worked. You know, they would have got the timing completely wrong. And it's just those tiny little touches here and there, whether they be comedy or other things like that. Serendipity. Yes, serendipity. It just makes it lovely.
4: We haven't really spoken about the cars.
3: Which one would you have wanted, the gold Aston Martin or the red Ferrari? Roger always said he he felt he got lucky because the Aston was big and lovely and there was plenty of room and poor old Tony had this tiny Ferrari which he complained about getting in and out of.
5: I I would have taken the Aston Martin but in a different colour. i'm Mm -hmm. not it's not my favorite color bahama yellow the
4: dino was a lovely little thing but there's one point in one of the austerly episodes where they're parked up it might be um morning after somebody's coming in the fleet of cars and the dino is so small it just disappears behind the other cars you can you can barely see it
3: there was quite a few problems with that dino tended to overheat a lot Whereas Aston Martin had sent a mechanic to be on set all the time with the Aston Ferrari didn't supply anyone and it got a bit of abuse from the crew because it was one of these cars that cameramen and you know sound people were eyeing up and there's a story that one of them had driven it and it had a little bump. The passenger door got knocked off during filming and it had to be put back on so because Johnny Goodman said he, Ferrari offered him the car at the end for a reasonable price, but he knew what had happened to it in terms of the abuse the crew had given to it, so he
5: declined.
3: The cars are just as much a part of the show as the
5: actors in a way, aren't they? And if, if Curtis's car was a little bit unreliable and overheated, you know what I'm going to say next. It sort of almost fits in with him a little bit, doesn't it?
3: so moving on to sort of post persuaders you know there was a lot of talk at the time about the persuaders returning for a second series and although sadly it wasn't a success in america there was um talk of Roger being replaced with Noel Harrison because Roger had signed on to become James Bond but Bob obviously decided that we'll stay with what we've got and 24 episodes is good and we'll just remember it and move on I wondered what you guys thought of proposed casting of Noel Harrison I'm not
5: convinced personally I think Tony would have made mincemeat of him well first of all I'd say who and then my second point would be you can't replace either of them you know i mean we we said all along this show works despite sometimes the scripts because of the fantastic chemistry between two highly talented guys how could you replace either of them
4: in terms of the industry noel was was really quite a lightweight he didn't have that history within the business you can't imagine him being as sparky as Roger was as, as sort of that level of interactivity and essentially that maturity because Curtis and Moore were peers. They'd come up the hard way. They'd done the slog. They'd done the graft. They'd built a career step by step by step.
5: Well, these are two guys who didn't need a first name on the titles. Precisely. You know, need we say more? You couldn't put Harrison up there, could you? You know, is that whatever? Um, was there any truth behind Tony Curtis saying that the idea with the second series was there'd be no foreign locations, that the budget would be cut, or is that unreliable? Or That's where I
3: find that peculiar, because I think if there had been a second series, they'd have had to go to America. Because it would have built on the first series, and what the American audience wanted was to see those guys in, say, New York. They would have wanted to see Brett Sinclair out of his comfort zone in the Bronx. I think they'd have they'd have had to switch that round. I'm not convinced by Noel Harrison at all. You know, it was in the papers that they were thinking about it. But I think, like, he hasn't got the charm. He couldn't have done the impromptu lines that Roger did when Tony was feeding him the ad-libs and he had to give as good as he got, but then he also had to remember the killer line to move it on to the next scene. I just can't have seen it working without any anyone else but those two. But saying no. that, I've got four unmade storylines, three of which were for the proposed second series. So it's not as if they hadn't been thinking about it. If you want to know the titles of them, I can give you them now, because I'm sure that lots of people don't even know about this. So the four unused storylines are called Invitation to a Funeral, A Girl Could Get Killed, A Long Weekend, and a shooting war. The Long Weekend is actually titled as The Friendly Persuaders, so we know this is an, a very early story outline that didn't get moved on, but the other three were written in preparation for a second series, Should It Go Ahead? And I just think that's fascinating. I mean, they're, they're, as outlines, they're, they're there. They've got the teaser, Act 1, 2, and 3. They're four or five pages long. They're fabulous things to read. I'm hoping that we might be able to do something with them in the future so everyone will be able to read
5: them. Tony Curtis, from what I've read, he suggested at one point he and Roger Moore were both still talking about a second series before Roger Moore had sort of signed on the dotted line for 007. Is that correct?
3: When I interviewed Roger... I'd say in the last year before he died, part of the main thing for this interview was I'd unearthed these unmade storylines. So I talked to Bob about them. I talked to Johnny Goodman about them. And I thought, I have to talk to Roger about them. Roger was quite dismissive in the way of the second series because he remembered it being that we'd only get a second series if it worked in the States. Bob and Johnny were always hoping that it would go to a second series. I mean, the original plan... Rumour has it, it, was they were going to do five series. But I couldn't have imagined the Persuaders working in, say, 1975 or 76. Uh, we talked about it being a time capsule. A second series might have worked, but by the time we get to things like the oil crisis and then you get Thames TV making things like the Sweeney, uh, 74, 75, I think the Persuaders yeah. would have looked so dated in comparison.
4: As it is, it stands very well. Well, it it would have been impossible to replace Roger Moore and he was committed to Bond and whatever, so it's a a bit sort of what if, isn't it?
3: Yeah, I I must admit, personally, I'm glad that we just had one series of 24. Much as I love this, and everyone knows this is my favourite show, I just can't see a second series without Roger working at all. And Mm -mm. I think if they had done it, they'd had to go to New York to please American audiences. I think it would have been a slightly different feel to that first series. I just think that actually I'd rather just have what we've got and relish and enjoy them than when something just goes on and on and on.
5: A a second series with someone else in either part would detract from what we've got now.
4: It would have ruined, ruined the memory.
5: What about the fashion then?
3: We haven't talked about Brett Sinclair's kipper ties or Tony's sort of like I'm going to go to
5: Chelsea and buy this leather jacket and wear it. There is a downside to the fashion, and that is, and it's something that Robert Sellers points out in his book. It does date the series in a way that you know. You were saying a few weeks ago with the podcast jazz. You know, you look at the Saint in black and white. You look at even men in a suitcase, and they're pin sharp. I think was your term. Um, There's nothing pin sharp about Brett Sinclair. (laughs) I do think, I I think Danny Wilde comes out a lot better. Is it true that he went down a King's Road and basically picked everything himself?
3: Yes, he did. Mm -hmm. He had a a few suits made at the start. There's an article in a Men in Vogue magazine where Lou Grader basically sent him to a tailor to be fitted out in a number of suits for the series. He did wear a few of them, but Straight away he was un- like uncomfortable in being dressed in Lou Gray's outfits, and he wanted to bring his character to him. So, Danny's suits rapidly went out the window. Yeah, he went down to Kings Road and decided that he was going to buy his own wardrobe.
5: And it's a, it's a slightly more timeless wardrobe, isn't it? I mean, in some of those episodes, he's got sort of t-shirts and leather jackets, and that still look good. I'm struggling to find anything that Brett Sinclair wears that would look okay today.
4: There's one early episode. He comes in in a jacket, which is bigger than the check he got from Lou Grade, I think. But I think his biggest faux pas was the medallion and the roll neck.
3: That's to the death baby. and That's the South of France sort of outfits, really, isn't it?
4: Mm -hmm. Ten out of ten, Jazz, because you remembered, as I just checked my notes, the medallion was to the death baby, spot on.
3: I suppose I should know, shouldn't I? I've only been writing about this series for
5: 32 years. So So, Summit the Persuader saw me then, guys. I love the fact it's come at the end of a decade where we've had all sorts of different action adventure from ATC. This recaptures some of that. It also gives us that lovely sort of pastiche and wink in the eye. I think it's a landmark show in terms of getting a Hollywood star over. And Tony Curtis is the X Factor reined in by Roger Moore watching it now in 2020 in view of some of the sort of grim reality we'd be getting in the real world and on television afterwards. What a wonderful way to begin the 70s.
4: Glamour, glitz, gloss. The most amazing thing is we remembered all of those elements and the majority of us were watching on little black and white TVs. the, the, The thing just shone out of the screen. It was personality. It was those two guys. It was entertainment. It was fun.
3: Well, we'll be back for another podcast. The next one will be on the Zoo Gang. Thanks for listening. Thanks ever so much to my usual partners in crime here. I feel like the judge. One of them's nitro and one of them's glycerin, and I'll be the man who lights the fuse. And on that note, we'll say goodbye. You have been listening to episode four of the ITC Entertain the World podcast. This episode was on The Persuaders, with me, Jazz Wiseman, Rodney Marshall and Al Mudge. It was a Bitter and Twisted limited production for the morning after.